amazing. And so we, we all can uh, immediately gravitate to the most famous verse in John, which is chapter 3, verse 16, and that representation of believing that God so loved the world, He loved us so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Believing, just in that context alone, if you don't read the next couple of verses, it seems so simple. It just seems, you know, you just believe. You, you, you see a miracle. You believe that anyone who could do the things that Jesus did must be sent from God, and then you would receive eternal life. But there's a lot hanging on our understanding of the word belief. Later on in chapter 3 and verse 36, the Scripture says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I would say that that makes this understanding of believing pretty important, wouldn't you agree? And we remember that there's a lot to it. We remember how chapter 2 ended, where the Scripture says that now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. And then, of course, last week as we got into the end of chapter 6, Jesus has this huge crowd around him. And then to the dismay of his followers, he begins to have a conversation with them about believing and about lordship. And he says that to follow him and receive eternal life, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood, which we saw was a physical metaphor to help us understand a spiritual reality that Jesus must be to us. We must we must trust in him as we trust in food and drink water to sustain us so belief that saves we've seen is not it's not just any kind of belief it's belief in his word as well as his works it's not merely just belief in his works it's not enough to say oh well i believe that I, I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus, and, and I know that He can do great things. The Scripture says in 1 John chapter 2, He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brothers... I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, otherwise you believe in vain. So you see, it is true, as Romans chapter 10 says, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But it is how we respond and what do we understand about who Jesus is and what he's saying so obedience is a good way to understand 
believing and obedience. Obedience is the outward expression of your love of God. It's the outward expression of your love of God. Does that sound familiar to anybody recognize that quote? Come on. It's Henry Blackaby. Henry Blackaby said, Obedience is the outward expression of your love of God. So let's set the context for John chapter 7 because there's, like I said, we'll be all over the chapter, but there's a lot of very wonderful things that God desires to show us. The context, really, you see in verse 2. Look down at verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. You, You notice earlier when I was reading those passages that John is always telling us what's going on. Earlier we were studying it was the feast of Passover. Now we have the feast of tabernacles or booths which is something that always takes place in the fall during harvest usually about October is when uh, that would take place and during that time uh, Jews would would construct these booths or tabernacles they would make these little tents out of uh, branches and limbs and they would move out of their house and they would sort of camp in these little booths and they would lay down at night and they had holes in the top of them so when they laid down to sleep they would look up and they would be able to see the sky and see the stars and it was meant to be a reminder of the 40 years that they had wandered in the wilderness and it's very important that uh, this is going on right now it's a very big part of John chapter 7 and and God wants us to understand that this is going on that it's during this feast that all this is happening and so I want to just set a few things in your heart about this feast that the feast teaches us. The first thing it teaches us is that this is not our home. You see, the booth was designed to be a reminder that, that, that we're not to get too connected to our physical possessions and the home in which we live in because we're not home. We're passing through. And so even these, these shells or these bodies which we occupy are merely tents that are temporary as we are uh, going through the, the vapor of this life until we reach eternity. And, you know, most people today in our day, especially in this culture, because we live in such a time of uh, affluence and abundance, that people don't think that, that eternity or where we're going is that amazing. They're hung up on how amazing this place is. Believe me, this place is not amazing. It's not amazing at all. And uh, there are times when we're amazed uh, at, at maybe the beauty or the power of the world, of the creation in which we live in. But even in those times, they're but a, a small little shadow. The most beautiful thing you've ever seen is but a tiny shadow of what you will one day see. This is not our home. Secondly, the Feast of Tabernacles was meant to teach us that God is all we need. You see, the whole time of traveling through the wilderness was a reminder all along the journey that God is the provider of every need that we have. And every step of the way, He provided for His children. And He, he allowed them to understand their inability to provide for themselves, but His complete willingness and capacity to provide all that they need. So that they become completely dependent upon Him. And it's a good reminder for us that today, in this moment, wherever you are and whatever you're facing, God is all you need. As two weeks ago, we saw from John chapter 6 in the beginning of that chapter. And then thirdly, 
God leads his people. He leads his people. That He doesn't just lead his people, but he leads his people personally. That he himself leads his people. Wherever his people end up along the way, think of all the places that, that, they, uh, that they traveled across those 40 years in the wilderness. They were north, they were south, they were east, they were west, they were all over the place. And every place that they were was a place that God had directed them to be. I'll just let you think about that for a second. Not just where you are, but everywhere you've ever been and everywhere you'll ever be is a place where God has directed you to be. It didn't catch him off guard. Even if it's a result of your poor decisions, it hasn't caught him off guard. It hasn't thwarted his plan and purposes. He still is sovereign and he's still good and he has authority to work and he is the leader of his people. So that's the context. Now we can look at this masquerade that I see in this chapter. I see two main masquerades. There are a lot of opinions going on. There are a lot of different things going on in the crowd. But two things in particular I'd like us to focus on this morning. The first masquerade is people who find Jesus threatening. People who find Jesus threatening. Now let's look at verse 1. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, what is the problem with the Jews? Why, why do the religious leaders want to kill Jesus? I mean, that is a pretty extreme response to... I mean, maybe there's been times in your life where you've said, boy, I could kill him. But I don't think you were actually plotting and scheming to kill somebody. I would certainly hope not. They were literally together corporately determined to kill Jesus. Now, the trouble really started back in chapter 5. Remember when Jesus healed the lame man who was laying by the pool on the Sabbath. In fact, look down in this chapter. Look at John 7. Look down to verse 21. And notice that Jesus says to the religious leaders, he answered them and said, I did one work. What's he talking about? Healing that man. That man laying by the pool. He said, I did one work. And you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken... Are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Now, what is Jesus saying? Not only is he referring to the core of their problem, which all started with this healing, but really they were on a crash course regardless. They were eventually going to come to the place where they hated Jesus want to kill him. But what's Jesus talking about? What's this issue of the law and circumcision? Well, the The law of Moses stated that when a male child is born, that he'd be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, what happened when the eighth day fell on a Sabbath? Now you've got two laws 
the law of the Sabbath, and you've got the law of circumcision that have now collided. Now, what are you going to do? Which law are you going to honor? How are you going to get around that? And so they would circumcise a child on the Sabbath, although clearly that would be considered doing work. And so Jesus is merely pointing out what they do not want to hear. Yeah. See, what Jesus is saying is that, well, you were able to see the priority to honor the law of circumcision, which you're actually keeping that law by circumcising that child on the eighth day if it's on the Sabbath. But you failed to see the point of circumcision. You failed to see that it's simply an outward symbol of a greater inward spiritual reality. That the New Testament says that God, through Christ, has circumcised our heart. And so, Jesus is just pointing out their, their, their love affair with the law and their blindness to what the law is meant to point to. They failed to see what circumcision was pointing to. That the work that God is going to do in the human heart. The real purpose eludes them. And so they've judged by appearances and by externals. And they don't judge rightly. And they are wrong in what they're doing. And so Jesus is the one who fulfills both what the Sabbath and circumcision point to. Isn't it interesting that they're standing right before the embodiment, the full fulfillment of these laws that they're so tangled up in. Now I know that for us today, it would be easy for us to disconnect from this situation because neither one of these two things are an issue for us. You haven't had a conversation about either one of these things with anybody, I would imagine, in quite a long time. But Jesus wants us to know this morning that this masquerade of being threatened by him is a big deal and that we need, to, we need to think thoroughly through it. In verse 19, if you look down at verse 19, Jesus said to them, Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, you see, Jesus has been doing what the Father has commanded him to do. He's made that painfully clear. He's not concerned about the opinions of the religious leaders. But he hasn't necessarily been sort of adversarial. In other words, he hasn't really thrown it in their face until now. But now, Jesus is getting real with them. And so, uh, there at the end of 6 and on here into... Seven, I mean, when you tell people who have given their life to keeping the law, the, their very existence, their identity is all wrapped up in the law. And he's, and he's saying, well, now, wait a minute. You're breaking the same law that you want to kill me for breaking. You want to kill me because I healed a man on the Sabbath, and yet you perform circumcision on the Sabbath. And he says, none of you keeps the law. Ouch. Now, if you were 
If you were able to put yourself in the place of a, of a Pharisee or, a, or one of the, uh, the, the priests or religious leaders, what, do you, what would you imagine that their understanding of salvation is? In other words, they wouldn't understand salvation as we use the term salvation, but how would they understand heaven? How would they understand access to heaven? How would they understand what would determine whether a person would get to heaven or not get to heaven? It would all be wrapped up in their ability to abide by the law. Heaven was for people who were excellent at keeping the law. And if you weren't good at keeping the law, well, then you had no chance at heaven. Their salvation was wrapped up in the keeping of the law. And so, therefore, what their identity was based on, what, what the glory that they found in life was in their own personal ability to keep the law, especially the fact that they're the religious leaders. They're the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're the ones who hold the positions of power and authority. And so they were the ones who were masters at keeping the law. So now you're beginning to understand why they feel threatened by Jesus because he is coming along and not only breaking the law, but exposing the fact that they're unable to keep the law as well. And it's really creating all sorts of tension. And what Jesus wants them to know is that there's no salvation for those whose root desire is to be good enough on their own. There's no salvation. Salvation eludes those who desire to achieve it through their own works and good deeds. There's nobody in heaven, nor will there ever be anybody in heaven who is there based on their ability to do good works or to keep rules or laws of any kind. So look at what Jesus says. Look down in verse 33. The Pharisees and the chief priests, they send their officers to go get Jesus, and that doesn't work out. But Jesus says to them, verse 33, I shall be with you a little longer, and then I will go to him who sent me. Now look at what he says. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Ouch. He said, hey, you can't come where I'm going. Because you are trying to base your glory on your ability to be good. On your ability to, to keep rules. And it's just a masquerade. And it's a falsehood. Now let's look at the second masquerade. Masquerade number two. So we have people who find Jesus threatening. And then we have people who find Jesus useful. People who find Jesus useful. Now look at verse 3. The scripture says, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now look at verse 5. For even his brothers 
did not believe in him. Now these are the half-brothers of Jesus. These are the brothers who were born after him. Of course, Jesus was born of a virgin, but Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus. And so included in this is Simon and Judas, not Iscarius, and uh, James and Joseph. He also had some sisters that were alluded to, although we don't know how many or what their names are. But here's the point. These are Jesus' half-brothers. Now, you really have to think about this for a moment. They're here, right? In other words, they're not at home, you know, building furniture, running the family business, or doing whatever it is that they do. They're here where Jesus is. Now, it would make sense to me that if they didn't believe in him, then they, would, they wouldn't be here. They'd be saying, well, he's a fake and a fraud, and he's not who he says he is, and he really can't do those things. He's just a magician, and he knows how to, you know, do a sleight of hand and fool your eye, and it's an optical illusion, and it's not real. And so, but that's not the case. They're where Jesus is, and they're telling Jesus, hey, you should go to Jerusalem, and you should show everybody all the things you could do. They're acknowledging their belief in the fact that Jesus can do amazing things, that he can perform miracles, yet John says that they do not believe in him. I'm fascinated by this. Hmm. They believe enough to say, you know what, Jesus, you, you, need to, you need to go to the city, especially right now because it's the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, there are, there are tons and tons of people there. And so you need to go. They know what just happened at the end of John chapter 6. They know that, you know, most of Jesus' followers just left because of the whole lordship conversation. And so they're thinking, you know what, Jesus, you need to build it back up again. Now, now did we hear anything from these brothers in chapter 6? We didn't hear a word. Wonder why that is. Well, my guess is because there were thousands and thousands of people around Jesus. But now that the, the crowd has dwindled, suddenly they start speaking up and saying, hey, here's what you need to do. Let's go up to the city. Everybody's there. You start healing people and, 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 and feeding people out of nothing and doing all these miraculous, raising people from the dead. and Man, it's going to be awesome. Why don't we go do that? Let's go do that, Jesus. And John says they don't believe in him. Jesus' brothers know the things that he has done. They know all those things. They know that he has walked down streets, walked through communities, and healed everybody in that community. They know that he's, that he's healed sick people without even being in their presence. They know, in fact, I'm sure that they, they even know the story of Jesus walking on the water that preceded this. They know all these things that have happened. They know the works that he's done. 
but they can't align themselves with what he has said. Notice their very clear objective. Jesus, you need to go to the city and you need to do some signs and you need to do do some wonders. That's it. I meet people all the time who have had positive interactions with the compassion of Christ, maybe through other people. As we're going to do our part to love back the people in Texas who have been affected by the hurricane. It's, I know that many of you are like me. You've relived so many memories in these last days as you've watched the news reports and you've thought about the things that are going on and uh, as many of you know Lisa and I have family there who were all flooded out and there are other families in our church that have family members there who have lost everything and so as I've talked to them on the phone and they're you know pulling the sheetrock out of their house and I'm telling them Make sure that you do this and make sure that you do that. And, you know, and they're thinking, how do you know all this? And I'm thinking, oh, man. This week, I was just praying for the, the gospel witness that will respond and already has in such power. And I, I, could, I could almost smell the smells. I, I can remember... Standing in the midst of devastation and, and just being so ragged and weary. Just, you know, days without a shower. Uh, days without even looking in a mirror. I can remember being in that state and, and, and standing amidst rubble and holding people and praying for them and and weeping for them, and and serving them, and being a blessing to them. And wondering as I rode away, not a dozen times, but hundreds of times, and wondering what will happen as a result of this time that we shared together. I don't want it to just be a time where they were touched by the compassion of a Christ follower, where they had a warm feeling about who Jesus is, and they would say, oh, he's such a good man, and his followers are so good. That's insufficient information. You see, the distinguishing identification of one who believes is not in his works False disciples have always and will always embrace his works. They follow the crowds. They are infatuated with the supernatural. And they'll oftentimes use all of that to try to uh, bring favor, to cash in on Jesus, if you will, for their own benefit. But what John shows us crystal clear is that it's whenever Jesus begins to speak 
that alienation and division come. You notice there's never any alienation or division around the things he, when he does things, it's when he speaks, the problem comes in. Look at verse 6. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. He's answering his brothers. But your time is always ready. These are his family. I have half-brothers who don't believe. But your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going to this feast, for my time has not yet come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. You might want to underline two things in your Bible. The end of verse 6 that says, Your time is always come. And then notice the end of verse 7. The hate is based on because I testify. Not, what he, not the works that he does. It's because of his testimony. So isn't it interesting that these two masquerades are going on at the very same time. That we've got this group of religious leaders that wants to kill Jesus and, and, and hates him because they feel threatened by him. And what they're using as a, as a catalyst of all this are, are these, is the miracle that he did, although that's not the issue. And then you've got this other masquerade that's going on with his, his own brothers, and they love the miracles, and they want to see more miracles. I mean, at the exact same moment, Jesus has some people standing over there that want to kill him because he did a miracle, and he's got his brother standing over here saying, come on, let's go up where everybody is and do a bunch of miracles. And it seems like two completely different things. But in reality, they're exactly the same. They're two different representations of the exact same thing, which is unbelief. So Jesus says, no, I'm not going. You go. Look at verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Now, again, I'm just telling you that if maybe you're new to Bible study, you open your Bible uh, maybe, you know, in D group this week and you begin to read and, well, when you begin to read and the gospel writer or the, or the scripture makes a point of telling you that it's the Feast of Tabernacles, there's a reason. So if you don't know what the Feast of Tabernacles is, it'd be a good time to put the brakes on and Go to Leviticus and read about that so you can get some understanding or have a good study Bible so you can realize what that is and so understand, okay, that's what's going on right now. And then as you continue to go on, you're, 
you're noticing that Jesus' brothers are inviting him to go up to the feast, and he declines and says, I'm not going. And then the very next verse says, but after they went, then he went in secret. Something is going on. Amen? Something's happening. So they want him to go to Jerusalem. Why? They want him to go and display his works. But Jesus has no interest in that. And so he waits, and after they leave, he goes up by himself in secret. He doesn't want to display his works. He wants to display his word. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, and what did he do? Ah. So his brothers invite him to come. And show off his powers. Jesus waits. Goes up secretively. And then right in the middle of the feast. He slides into the temple. And he begins to teach. He has a different agenda. Look at verse 15. And when the Jews. They marveled saying. How does this man know letters. That having never studied. How could somebody. Know the things that he knows. And they haven't been to the. You know, Pharisee University. It's almost comical. The Word is teaching. John's already established the fact that Jesus is the Word. And so the Word of God is teaching, and they're completely blown away. And this week, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, I was praying, God... If you, if you were to teach John chapter 7 Sunday morning, how would you teach it? And then I listen. Man, I'd like to hear that. Then that still small voice whispered back and said, I am teaching just through you. Verse 16, Jesus answered and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. So Jesus, again, points to the fact that he is operating completely under the authority of the one who sent him, the Father. And although they are equally God, Jesus in the flesh is doing the will of the Father as directed by the Father. Teaching what the Father has shown him and gives him to teach. And over and over, Jesus is making that clear. And he's pointing out to his audience... That their problem is, is that they're seeking their own glory. That they have these opinions about Jesus. And they're playing these masquerades. They're wearing these masks and pretending to be things. But all of it is all wrapped up in their desire for their own glory. But Jesus is pointing out the same thing he pointed out to the first masquerade. 
just slightly different, that there is no salvation for those who seek Jesus for what they can get. There's no salvation for those who seek Jesus for what they can get. So there's no salvation for those who are going to merit themselves on being good enough and there's no salvation for those who come to Jesus just so that they can receive. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 43. Here, I think these will come up on the screen for you. Jesus said this, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Now let's just be reminded for a second. The religious leaders are masquerading because they're threatened by Jesus because they they understand salvation as coming through their ability to keep the law, right? And so if you are good at keeping the law, how do you know you're good at keeping the law? Because you tell each other who's good at keeping the law. You elect each other to position. You, you receive all of your accolades, all of your uh, all, of, all of your abilities are acknowledged by one another. So you receive praise from men. They were constantly setting themselves apart from the common people because they were the people who had the law, possessed the law, knew the law, and didn't let other people even know the things they knew about the law. And they were getting all of their, their glory from each other. Then you've got the brothers who are saying, Jesus, what you need to do is you need to go up where all the people are and start doing all these amazing, miraculous things and performing signs and wonders. And I wonder why they were so interested in Jesus performing signs and wonders. It's simply because they knew that as soon as Jesus started doing that, the crowds would return. And guess what the half-brothers want? They want to be a half-brother to the one who has the powers to do all these miraculous things because it's going to bring glory and honor unto them. From who? Other men. And Jesus is saying all this masquerading is about people trying to get glory from people. Just like we see all day long, every day in the world in which we live. People running around seeking glory from other people. That's the masquerade. Now, Jesus, there he is. Surrounded by people. He's teaching in the synagogue. He's up in the temple teaching. People are, are packing in there. Because if you read the whole chapter, you'll read where they, they're, they're all marveling at the things that he's teaching. They, can't, they, they say over and over, we've never heard anybody speak with such authority. But he knows the hearts of all the people around him. He knows that his brothers are only interested in using him 
as a means to which to draw a crowd and to gain notoriety. He knows that the religious leaders want to kill him because they're threatened by him because he's undermining the thing that they use to make people respect them and look up to them. And so he's surrounded by all these people who are pretending to be something they're not. In other words, what are the Pharisees pretending to be? Well, they're pretending to be religious represent, a religious representation of God. They're the ones that people would say, well, that's what it looks like to be a follower of God. And in fact, Jesus says, you don't even know God. You've never heard from God. You don't know the law. You don't obey the law. You don't know anything about the law. His brothers, on the other hand, why aren't they at home? Because they're following Jesus around like all these other false disciples are. They want to be associated with him. They want people to think that they're part of what he's doing. They, they're sort of waiting to see how this whole thing's going to pan out, to see how they can cash in on it. How's it going to help their life? There's no difference between his brothers and, and the people who come to church because their marriage is in trouble. And all they want is for Jesus to fix their marriage. People come to church every Sunday because they want Jesus to fix their finances. They want Jesus to get them a job because they got diagnosed with cancer. Suddenly they've got religion because they want God to fix their health. It's a never-ending stream of all these opinions of Jesus that he's the relationship master. Jesus is, is the, 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 the heavenly Dr. Phil. Jesus is the, the, the perfect financial manager. Jesus is the, the great physician. And so you can just come to him and, and, and he'll make your physical problems go away. You can come to Jesus and whatever problem you have, he's going to fix your problem. And there's a multitude of people that are still spinning the same lie. And John is trying to make crystal clear to us. Listen, you cannot come before a holy God and bring your achievements or the things that you've done or how good you think you are or the fact that there's other people that you know that are worse than you or whatever the case may be. You got to leave all that outside. He's not interested in any of that. You can't come to him and think you're going to use him to be your Santa Claus, to meet the needs that you've written down on your list. I've seen people come in churches and look like the greatest thing you've ever seen. And they're obsessed with God doing this thing in their life. Every time you see them, they're wailing, you know, about their marriage. God's, would he fix my marriage? Was he going to fix my marriage? Was he going to fix my marriage? I need a job. I need a job. I got cancer. I got cancer. Well, what about God? See, God may do those things in your life. He may do them. But here's what God wants to know. God wants to know, why are you coming to Him? Are you coming to Him for Him? 
Are you going to love him and obey him and worship him if he doesn't fix the things that you want him to fix? Because if you're just here for things to get easy, you're in the wrong place. The Bible says that the wrath of God will abide on you. Now, Jesus is surrounded by this crowd. And what is he going to do? And the most remarkable thing happens down in verse 37. Look down in verse 37. Now remember, it was the time of the feast. His brothers came to him and said, let's go. The feast is going to begin. Jesus waits. He goes up and begins to teach in the temple. When is it? It's where in the feast? The middle of the feast, right? Now, verse 37 says, on the last day of what? The great feast. Jesus stands up, looks around. And cries out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, put the brakes on right there. Get your pen out and start circling. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What does it say? This is very important. He stands up, surrounded by a bunch of fakers, frauds, masquerading pretending, following him for wrong motivations. And he says, listen, he didn't say it to one or two people. He cried out so everybody could hear. If any of you thirst, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said. Not the way you said Not the way you were taught, not what you think, not what the guy on TV said, not what your denomination says, not what your perception is, what the Scripture says. You see, the division is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. As the Scripture said, out of his heart then will flow rivers of living water. That is remarkable. Here he is. In the midst of all these opinions, almost all of which which are negative and wrong and shallow and half-hearted. And And he says to the people who find him threatening. Hey, if you're thirsty, you can drink. He says to his half-brothers, hey, if you're thirsty, you can drink. Notice down in verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to the said to them, see, they, they sent them out to go get Jesus, and then they come back, and they don't have Jesus. And they go, well, why have you not brought him to us? And the officers answered and said, no man ever spoke like this man. 
Huh? Now, the Pharisees answered to them. Now, now understand, these are temple officers. These are men whose whole lives exist being under authority. They wake up every day and perform a duty that they're told to do by the religious rulers and the leaders of the temple. They said, go and get Jesus and bring him back. They go, come back empty-handed. And those in authority say, well, why don't you have him? And they say, they don't lie. They don't make something up. They just say, uh, we never heard anybody talk like that. So the Pharisees say, are you also deceived? Oh, they're mad. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? You see? In other words, you don't do what you think you ought to do. You look at us to see what you ought to do. If you want to know what to do, you look at the religious elite to see that. That's our job because we have a very, a very precious public opinion and a, and a status None of us have believed, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You see? Oh, this, this crowd's a bunch of foolish people. They don't know the law. They haven't been educated in the law. They don't know that what Jesus is doing and saying is blaspheming the law. And look at verse 50. Now, who just showed up in the scene? Our old friend. Some of you in here know him real personally, don't you? Nicodemus shows up. Just in case we were unaware of who he is, he's the one who came to Jesus by night back in chapter 3. And he says to them, they were all gathered around the Sanhedrin, he says, does our law, does our law judge a man before he hears him and knows what he is doing? In other words, Nicodemus says, now hold on a minute. You can't condemn a man without a fair trial. We haven't, we, haven't, we haven't discerned or talked to him or given him an opportunity to defend himself. And look at what the rulers do. They answered him and said, well, are you also from Galilee? Oh. Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. He's saying, oh, Nicodemus. Oh, you're siding with this one from Galilee, which is the wrong side of the tracks. Nothing good comes out of there. You know, it's a poverty-stricken, rotten end of town. So you must be from Galilee. He must be like one of your homeboys. You're backing him up, right? Why don't you search the Scriptures and see that no prophet comes from Galilee? So that's what I did. I said, well, let's see. Did any prophets come from Galilee? Hmm. Jonah came from Galilee. Nahum came from Galilee. Hosea came from Galilee. They don't even know the law. The law that they claim to know. There's three prophets right there. All came from Galilee. So either they know that and they're just revising everything to make themselves sound good or they're, as Jesus said, you don't even know the law. You're a poser. There's old Nicodemus. Probably at this time, still unconverted, but he's in process. He's thinking. He's thinking about that conversation he had with Jesus that night. 
he's thinking about that whole thing about being born again. And it's working on him. And he knows that there's something to it, and he hasn't fully wrapped his head around it or his heart around it, but he's, he's on his way. And the next time we meet Nicodemus, he'll be a fully converted, born-again follower of Jesus. As him and Joseph of Arimathea take the body of Christ after the crucifixion. So amongst masquerade number one, there's one that God's redeeming. What about amongst masquerade number two? The crowd of people who are there because they find Jesus useful. He's made an invitation to them as well. He said, hey, if you're thirsty, you can drink. Who's in that crowd? Well, his brothers. But they don't believe. But there's one of his brothers named James. James is going to believe. James is going to write the epistle of James. James is going to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Within the masquerade are those who are in process, and God knows. And even in the midst of all the adversity against them, and the likelihood maybe that people would read John chapter 7 and just skim through all this and not realize what's really going on. What, what's, why, for example, why would the religious leaders, why wouldn't they just embrace Jesus? In other words, if their, if their message is to obey God, and Jesus' message is to obey God, and he can do all these miraculous things, wouldn't it just strengthen our case and just build our Movement? Why can't they embrace Jesus? What is, the, what is the component of Jesus' message that religion is unable to embrace? Grace. Jesus shows up filled with grace and truth. You see... People who are threatened by Jesus are threatened because of grace. Because grace makes a way for people that aren't very good to come to faith in Christ. Grace makes a way for people who don't know all the right things to come to faith in Christ. Grace makes a way for people who Never even thought they were perfect. In fact, have always thought of themselves as not good enough for anything to come to Christ. You see, grace is the message that God made a way of deliverance for everybody. Whoever thirsts, there's a way. It doesn't rest on your ability to keep the rules. It doesn't. You're not hindered by the things that are in your past. You don't need to fear whatever it is that's in your future. 
In fact, as, as much as the world would disagree with what I'm about to say, you don't even need to be filled with shame about the things that are in your present. If you thirst, you can come. No matter what masquerade you're playing, you don't have to be perfect because Jesus was perfect for you. And you can come to Him and you can walk in relationship with Him and be open about all your insufficiencies because Jesus was made sufficient in your place. So one last thing and then we're done. Remember all this was taking place at the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And what is Jesus teaching in all that we've said this morning? He's saying to the people that are around him, he's saying, this isn't your home. Don't just lay in a tent and look up at the sky, but listen to what I'm saying. This isn't your home. You weren't made for this place. I've been sent by the Father to tell you that there's a better place. And that you can, you can go. You can, you can come and declare your thirst and drink of living water and never thirst again. That there is something that is so drastically different from this world and everything that you understand this world to be. There's a place where living water flows where you don't thirst and you won't hurt. This isn't your home. He's telling us that He's all we need. That you don't need to go drink of five different things. You don't need to make a list and, and follow the list of all the things to drink of. He said, just come to me and drink. I'm sufficient. I'm all you need. Just come to me and drink. And then lastly, through both Nicodemus and James, we see God leads his people, doesn't he? He does. He leads his people. And neither one of them could ever imagine in a million years the journey that God has laid out before them, but he has a plan and he leads his people and he'll, he'll take us. You see, and where's he leading his people? To the promised land. Where's he leading you this morning? Don't be, don't lose heart though you woke up this morning and it felt like another day in the wilderness. It's okay. He's leading us to the promised land. He's showing us that he is the feast. 
He's the feast. And so I don't need to know your whole story. I don't need to know all the things that have led you to the place you are or understand all the nuances of your situation, although I'd be glad to listen. But Jesus knows. And what he's saying is, come and drink from me. Come drink from me. Drink. Don't walk around playing a masquerade. Saying with your mouth you're one thing. But the truth is, your actions give you away. Believe in him just as the scriptures have said. Let's stand and bow our heads.